Thanks for joining us for Ep 1.3, The Media is the Message Part 2, where we talk about fake news and the Frankfurt School. I think one of the interesting things about the way this discussion has turned, and I'm curious if you would agree with this, I am far more pissed off about mainstream organizations, centrist organizations, giving false equivalents or not contextualizing stories enough than I am about fake news. And yet I think in part because um, I spend a lot of time on the internet, I've seen probably five times as much coverage about fake news rather than on like the Washington Post selectively editing Richard Cohen's, you know, columns so that like bits about Donald Wayne to fuck Ivanka are taken out. You know, like, like (laughs) Julia Yaffe, by the way, got fired from Politico for tweeting a thing that apparently Donald Trump actually said when Ivanka was 13. You know, we may cut this from the podcast, but he literally said, is it wrong to be more sexually attracted to your own daughter than your wife when Ivanka was 13. But you know... Creepy as fuck. Jesus. First of all, creepy as fuck. (laughs) Second of all, the Washington Post cut that from Richard Cohen's column. Third of all, Julia Yaffe just got fired from Politico for basically tweeting that. So, yeah, I don't know what world we live in. But all that being said, I find all of those things way fucking... Everything we've been talking about, none of which is Macedonian teenagers making up that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. Did that matter? I don't care about that. Like, yeah, I think so much of that is just kind of like it's an easy target. You know, it's an easy target because, first of all, the, the press doesn't have any responsibility for it whatsoever. Right. Like right, they they're not Macedonian. They're teenagers. not Macedonian teenagers who made up fake stories about the Pope endorsing Trump. And so they don't care. Uh, it's very easy to point to these things and be like, oh, this is bad. Well, like, yeah, I mean, it's bullshit. But it's also not the thing that like really shapes the consciousness of political debate. Like, I don't, I mean, yeah, there are going to be people out there who read like Reddit conspiracy threads and what, whatever. Unfortunately, our new national security advisor. Like our but, national new national security advisor. But most people voting. But like, yeah, most people like don't really have any, like, I, I feel like the, the way that we have to think about it is, is it's kind of like this diffuse stuff that sort of floats in the background. And of course it probably snares some people, but I don't think it shapes the national consciousness and doesn't shape the environment of debate the same way that the New York Times or CNN does. Or or Fox News, right? Or Fox News. There's a Brookings piece saying that half of all conservatives only have one news source, basically, for, for the vast majority of their news, and it's Fox. And I am far more concerned about trying to hold Fox to some basic journalistic standards than I am worried about fake news. You know, Fox Business, which is a Fox property, selectively edited an Obama quote to make it appear as if Obama was encouraging illegal immigrants to vote. And this became a very widely reported conspiracy theory on the right. And you know what? That bothers me way the fuck more than, again, right, the Pope or Tom Hanks or whatever the Macedonian news farms are doing. Because, you know, half of all Republicans actually watch Fox. And like, You know, in terms of not fake news, but sort of basic standards and norms for how one portrays reality like that, that bothers me way more. Yeah, I think it's impossible to really talk about this also without talking about Fox, which really kind of, you know, is the I don't know, like the forerunner. That's not entirely accurate because they're still here, I guess. But they are the originator of kind of this idea of taking this conspiracy theory mindset and mainstreaming it. I mean, that is that is the stated purpose of this network more or less and after it was founded took all the stuff that was floating around like right-wing am radio and channeled it into like a massive distribution 
network. <laughs> and so, right, and, and like, spent on the talent, interestingly. So, you know, I, yeah. I have a friend who's a, a media reporter um, and now is sort of an everything reporter for The Guardian. And something that he notes is that unlike many cable news organizations at the time, what Fox did was it spent on people like O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly. It spent on its lead host, as oh, if yeah. it were like drive time radio and not on a reporting organization. Because it sort of understood, you know, Jabba the Hutt in human form, Roger Ailes, like understood that the like real goal of Fox was exactly to develop this sort of cultural the personality that that the AM radio folks had, not to break news stories, for example. Fox actually does very little reporting of its own. Right. And 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 now, you know, if you've had this organization that's been a big part of setting the environment for the last 20 years, you know, they've been preparing the groundwork for for a Trump because they have been involved in spreading misinformation. And so it's hard to know what to do about that because Fox is like this, it's an ideological organization, but at the same time, it somehow has, is being treated like a mainstream news organization in the, in the sense that, in terms of credibility. And I think the part of the problem here is that there's been this long running crisis of authority, I guess you could call it, with regard to, you know, who you can trust. You know, on the one hand, we have this vision of like, you know, whatever, I don't know, Walter Cronkite at CBS or something like that. It was like a trustworthy person. But for various reasons, whether it's been due to fragmentation or in no small part due to the uh, actual sort of mistakes and misdeeds of, you know, quote unquote, elite media. Um, And I'm thinking here primarily with regard to Iraq, but other issues as well. You know, even people who might have been otherwise inclined to be more accepting of the New York Times as like whatever, the paper of record, you know, now they feel like this is an organization that's really like let people down, and it's hard to it's hard to argue that that's not true, right? And so, and now wait, you, are you saying that people on the right feel like the New York Times has let it down? Or? Well, I think that the problem is not that the people on the I mean, so so the right had its own like media ecosystem and has had it for a while, but there was a time when I think you could you could have gotten a lot of conservatives, not maybe like the movement people, but sort of the people who are, you know, in the squishy middle or, you know, vaguely right of center, you could have gotten them to take the New York Times seriously as a source of legitimate reporting. And and I think this is actually true both on the right and the left, is that you just have this like massive loss of confidence in that in this news organization as like being kind of a an honest deliverer of news. Sure. Because of the various ways that they fucked up. And so, like, now the people who are, now the people who are, like, on the right are like, well, you know, you're all idiots about whatever, I don't know, Iraq, you're, like, all ideologically biased, like, I don't have to, I don't have to listen to you, right? And uh, those people are gone. And also the people who are on the left, who also would have been probably a lot more sympathetic, you know, say the same thing. And it's hard to say that they're wrong. Right. Well, I think it's important here to say there are two axes. I I don't think either of us, when we were earlier attacking the Times for being faux impartial, were calling for the Times to become Fox News. Because I think that... Oh, no, not at all. Right. We can make a call for a more honest adversarial journalism. That is, if you have a political bias... Wear it on your sleeve. Don't fake that. That's incredibly lame. Actually respect people's arguments by contextualizing them and saying what they're really arguing for. And at the same time, think that it would be good if basically Fox News had obeyed and parts of the media system on both the left and right, although I think more on the right, mm-hmm. obeyed a basic principle of some sort of norm of integrity. And, yeah. and I think you can have integrity and have a political position. You, you can firmly believe, for example, that... 
uh, climate change mitigation is ineffective and climate change mitigation is, is going to actually damage GDP more. You know, uh, Jim Manzi had this position, and I think that's actually possibly Exxon's position. So maybe our Secretary of State believes it. But but I think that, you know, what's weird is you can't honestly have a position that Barack Obama is telling illegal immigrants to vote or Barack Obama is secretly a Muslim. And I, I think that there's this weird confluence in because defenders on the orthodox media side, the Times will say, well, you don't just want us to become like Fox, right? And it's like, no, no, we don't. We want you to be an honest liberal broker like you are. And we also would push other organizations to be honest brokers and stewards of, of their political views. And what's most interesting to me, I think, is that you don't have to actually even leave the Times to find examples of reporters who have done this. So, uh, you know, the great example of the Bush years and since then uh, is like Eric Lichtblau and James Risen who have, you know, done amazing work on reporting on the national security state. There was a great series in 2010 at the Washington Post by Dana Priest and William Arkin. Uh, it was called Top Secret America. I like I always I recommend this to everybody because it's just this amazing piece of investigative journalism. And those are the kinds of pieces that I think when you read it, you're like, oh, like an amazing amount of work went into this. And yeah, it definitely comes from I, I, I don't doubt that you know, all four of those reporters have, you know, are probably some somewhere left of center, but they're not digging up like whatever salacious rumors about like people's sex lives. I mean, they're investigating like legitimate issues with the national security state. And their criticisms have continued from the Bush administration, the Obama administration. Yeah, right. right. So and um, and you also see a lot of uh, and if you do want to leave like the Times and the Post, you see a lot of really good reporting in, you know, in smaller publications that don't have quite the same reach. You know, you can see it in The Nation. Uh, I mean, Mother Jones had this really great series uh, by a reporter named Shane Bauer, where he's got he went undercover with like a private prison. And he also uh, did an undercover stint with these dudes who, like, quote unquote, patrol the border. They're like just these sort of quasi vigilantes, I guess. Um, and it's a really, like, interesting reporting. And I have no doubt that, like, you know, Shane Bauer is not a fan of private prisons. Like, that comes out in his reporting. And obviously, Mother Jones is also an ideological publication. But the journalistic standards that those stories are held to are like they're they're evident when you read them they are not like invented nonsense right. you, you can have a point of view and and also you, deeply yeah, you report can just be correct story. you can be right. correct about the things you report if you look at the british media you know the guardians left of center the guardians a wonderful paper the guardian reports out things very well they also have both left and right-wing tabloids in britain that have sort of no sort of regards for journalistic standards i guess i'd say two things here one is um you know even within the Times, I think what makes Ross Douthat a more interesting person to read than David Brooks is sort of precisely this uh, core dishonesty point. You know, Douthat is a cultural conservative who believes in certain things, uh, certain moral choices that I disagree with, and he, he believes they're divinely inspired or that the, the, the Pope has sort of access to the truth. But he says that, and he sort of explains his positions, and, you know, we can disagree with them, they're interesting. Um, you know, so this is true of opinion writing as well, whereas Brooks seems to sort of support a centrist institutionalism, but then reject centrist institutionalism everywhere in practice. He's like Lucy with the football. The second thing that I want to say, though, is that uh, I'm going to weirdly attack capitalism here. A lot of the organizations you talk about doing really wonderful reporting are 
supported without a profit motive. And I do think there's an interesting thing about... And ProPublica, of course. I forgot to mention it. Right. And so, you know, not larger budget nonprofits for what it's worth, right? But but there's an interesting thing where it's like, oh, what are the commercial demands that make news organizations that that in theory should be... like the, Is the Times really being run on the benefit for its bottom line? I wouldn't think so. And yet the Times has sort of a lot more of this bullshit false equivalence than papers that may have smaller budgets, but but again, are, are funded as not-for-profits. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned before, it seems strange to me that you would consistently undertake actions that are going to drive away like the people who are probably most interested in your reporting. Because again, you know, now... If you read the Times coverage over the last year and you're a subscriber, uh, you know, how do you feel about that? Right. How do you do, do you feel like that's a newspaper that has served you well or right. do you subscribe to the post and cancel your time subscription? Right. <laughs> like, like, let's let's make a call. But but wait, talking about TV news. Though, so all the TV, there's no not for profit TV reporting. Mm-hmm. Right. And and TV was pernicious. You know, we can talk about the Times screwed up incentives. But yeah, CNN, we have talked a lot about print, but TV has been real bad. TV is obviously actually more widely viewed than print. You know, CNN, they made a billion dollars off of the campaign. And a lot of their coverage was just here's 40 minutes of a Nazi rally. I mean, it's a Trump rally. And like, I think that the, the problem that I really have with this is we have a lot of industries in the U.S. that we decide to partially regulate. We sort of have mixed regulations for. And because we're more First Amendment absolutists than most other democracies, we've traditionally taken a very, very light hand with the press. And that became even more true, actually, over deregulation that happened uh, in the 80s. You know, equal time went away. Jerry talks about this crisis of authority. The crisis of authority coincided with the time that news organizations were actually more free than, for, than, than ever before. And while that did produce a lot of new reporting and new stories from places that wouldn't have formerly been heard by like the three white men at the head of the broadcast desks. I think there is also this question of, would you really have had 40 minutes of a political rally as just TV coverage because, hey, the ratings were great and we were able to sell a lot of ad points for it? I mean, there, there, there is, I think, something to this idea that news organizations being fundamentally driven by a profit motive and without any concept of stewardship has created something that, that is really dangerous. Yeah, and would you have had an organization that was hiring Corey Lewandowski while he was still being paid by the Trump campaign. I mean, that's just like, it's hard to really even like know what to really, what to call that, right? It's just like a completely fundamental breach of ethics. And And they got more mad at Donna Brazil. Yeah, Donna Brazil leaked your town forum question. She shouldn't have done that. Donna, that was dumb. But like, Corey Lewandowski was taking money from the Trump campaign while he was on air. It, it's com- yeah, it's it's just this complete abandonment of any notion that you have responsibility. Not I don't like to say be objective, but that you have any responsibility of actually like investigating like what is what is going on. Like, I mean, I hate saying telling the truth because again, that's a, obviously sort of a very loaded term. You you can't be employing people who work for like the campaign that you're covering. That's just like a fundamental breach of They treat it like entertainment. Ethics. It was, it was oh, as yeah, if absolutely. you were covering the NBA and you were like, well, for the playoff series, why don't we get a retired Bulls guard in here to cover like, you know, the Bulls Celtics playoff series? It's actually... Well, that actually happens like all the time. No, right? it does happen. And why does it happen? That's fine with happening because it is not like, because you want insight on something that the outcome is of importance, obviously, to sports fans, but where, A, the biases are clear, and B, where there's no pretense to the idea that you're uncovering new factual information, what, right? Like, That's like, right. Like, you are, what you are doing is you're creating an entertainment product, and the best way to get an entertainment product is do something. And 
I don't think it's sufficient for CNN to slap up some disclaimer like not news at the top of its, uh, you know, crawl. Like, Especially I, when you're called cable news network. Right. Like, it seems like. What's funny is I bet Jeff Zucker would do that. Like if Jeff Zucker could get the ratings that he got this year every year, he would gladly put a like not 24 hour not news scrolling. I mean, I don't know. Uh, in the interest of democratic solidarity, do we need to nationalize the the TV networks? I mean, I'm kidding. I, I, don't, I <laughs> you know, I'm the neoliberal here. I firmly don't believe that. But yeah, I don't. I don't believe that either, actually. But but what do you do? Like, I I don't I don't know that there's like this. This is sort of it intersects back with this you know fake news story where a lot of people have been you know pummeling Facebook over it, like oh your algorithms are pernicious and you have to have human editors and blah blah blah, and. I'm not convinced that that is a good approach. Uh, I do understand that, you know, Facebook is in a weird place because they sort of call themselves a technology company. They're, they're a media really, company. Yeah. They're really a media co- They're really like a whole bunch of different things rolled into one. And they don't fit neatly into our sort of old pre-internet preconceptions of what sector they occupy. So they they, they span. I think, they, yeah, they are a media company in some ways. They're a technology company in other ways. Whatever you want to call it, I don't think those labels are super the important. The vast majority of their revenue is derived from selling advertising correct, next correct. to content. To me, that makes the media. I appreciate that they're sure. doing it in a new way. But Sure. Yeah. I would put it this way. They have media concerns. Sure. So they, uh, they occupy some part of that space. But the pressure that's being put on them is like they have no good way of responding to it because they it's not clear to me that you can really ever without hiring like actual investigative reporters like this is this is why it's different when you are CNN versus when you're Facebook like Facebook is ultimately kind of a, a content aggregator in some sense and without hiring like actual human beings who are doing reporting that you can then put up as like, okay, well, this is a person you can trust because they, you know, they've, they've done X, Y, Z. They have, you know, these particular ethical commitments, blah, blah, blah. Without doing that, like you can't really, you will never satisfy anybody. Everybody will always complain that like their side is being suppressed. Uh, You're not like letting this other thing be shared, like whatever. But I think that's a fake goal because remember they did hire editors and then they fired those editors because the exact same reason that there was partisan bias on the courts. Right. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you can ever satisfy people who are, there are always going to be people who think that you're biased. I I think that doesn't absolve you of the duties. Like, I I think that Facebook could say, look, we don't, we don't produce any of the content ourselves and we just have an algorithm edit it. But algorithms are not these neutral things. Oh, no, no, not at all. And oftentimes very pernicious political results, right? Uh, Kathy O'Neill wrote a book about this called... Um, Weapons of Math Destruction. Right. And and talks about algorithms in various different areas. I think credit scoring, for example, one that's... <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't so, think, I don't think that algorithms are neutral, by the way. That's not the... Right. I, uh, I guess I'm just saying that Facebook, you know, to me has said, well, we're going to absolve responsibility because we don't create content. We don't really have editors. Like, these are user-defined behavioral choices. But ultimately, again, they're profiting by ads sold next to media that... Content that is, that is, that is spread out. Whether you're Facebook or CNN, I think there's a commitment to, you know, Jerry, as you were just noting, it's not just truth, because everyone's going to have their own political uh, shading on truth. But um, as you just suggested, an idea of a transparent base about the facts that you're inputting and and the sort of model that that outputs the news that you decide to report. So if CNN had a political motivation, that'd be fine. It could be discreet about it. But 
the lack of clarity about what the incentives are. And I think the really dangerous fact that CNN pretended that it was a truth teller, and in fact, a neutral truth teller, and that's why it had these people on, when it was explicitly just trying to make as much money as possible, and was actually deeply non-transparent about the level of connection that they had into the Trump campaign, for example, and and even the Clinton campaign. Like, you know, they, they were acting in the business of procuring talent that would be exciting. And there's something deeply problematic for our, I think, our country, and for norms about the ways in which the media behaves around news, for it to turn into that sort of talent show. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Where where I sort of, I guess, have, a, have an issue is that I, I'm not convinced that there's any like great way of combating that like there's no there's no central authority that is going to be able to make this work correctly and even if we did have a way i don't think it would be a good idea to like compel cnn to whatever like quote unquote do the right thing um because i i I don't think it's a good idea to you know vest that kind of power in uh government organizations (laughs) uh well to go back to the sibyl Rahman point i mean is this a place actually where because of our tradition of first amendment absolutism and because of the real dangers that you would have in having any government regulate the media, is there a place to have some sort of regulation framed by democratic accountability? I mean, you do have the FCC, yeah. so there are there are some things you can't do on television. It's true. It's true. There are some words. Yeah, I mean, I do I do wonder, like, you know, why it would be, a, you know, a real stretch, I think, in the U.S., but certainly like a model like the BBC in, in the sense that you just say, OK, well, coverage is important and like here's some amount of money, but you make it. I don't know, protected somehow in the in that so so that it can't be like taken away by uh, whatever Congress because you got unfavorable coverage or something like that. I mean, that's all it's all like very speculative, I guess. That is one way I think that you could create some kind of news organization that didn't have an explicit profit motive and that could pursue uh, these kinds of stories. But I think and why do you think PBS doesn't function that way, roughly, or? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because like NPR and its its affiliates, they they do get most of their support from from their subscribers. So you would think that they would be more kind of interested. They they wouldn't have these the same pressures, for example, that like a commercial outlet like a CNN has. But I think that over over time, you know, NPR definitely has found itself edging more and more into the territory where, you know, they have these like commercial partnerships and stuff. And now maybe some things can't get talked about as much because they might endanger those partnerships. And also, you know, there is definitely a cultural element to this as well. There's a lot of old guard at those organizations that don't necessarily share this viewpoint. Uh, and and actually, one of the one of the exceptions I think is that there's you know there's this excellent show called On the Media with Brooke Gladstone and I forget what the other dude's name is. Oh, Bob Garfield, that's his name. And it's actually a really good show that you know gets into a lot of this media critique, but it's just like one thing. You know, it's right. not it's not something that you hear you know every day on the radio. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like I don't I don't know that there's there are good solutions. Uh, I I wish that NPR were better than it is. I wish that CNN were better than it is. But I don't know of any good way of like making them better, other than to, for us to become like better media consumers. And I, I I hate saying that because I feel like you know it is obviously putting a lot of pressure on individuals to solve what is really a structural problem. 
But it's not clear to me that there's any way that we could like solve this problem with, you know, top down without creating even worse problems. Right. And, you know, it, it's funny to the extent that we had a listener question this week. It was this idea of why has there been so much media criticism in the media? And I think it's because there is no top down CEO who can articulate a thing. I mean, you know, kidding about nationalization of the press aside. I think also it, it speaks to why some of these concerns over new media, social media, fake news, etc., are, I think, overblown, because we've had dictators rise to power before using the tools of, once you have mass communication, it doesn't matter what form the mass communication takes. And, you know, it may be a hard ask for the burden to be on the citizenry, but I think that's one of those things about democracies. Like, democracies need to actually refresh themselves and have civic virtue. And if they don't, they can easily, I think, get get damaged or moved away. We, we talked about this last week in the episode on populism. I think it's sort of a recurrent theme that the media made all these terrible errors, but at some point it is a reflection of who the people are, right? And so if we want a better media, perhaps we do need better consumers and not just better in the sense of, you know, I want them to watch my team's media. You know, I think, you know, I would be super happy if more people were to go over to a Republican media that looked less like Fox News and more like, I literally can't think of a Republican media entity that I would like it to look like. Yeah, it would be, I mean, it would be something like maybe the, like the Wall Street Journal, some, some cross between like its news page and its editorial page. I guess that might be like a good model. I don't know. Right. The the Economist? I, yeah, it's actually, the Economist is weird. It's really, it doesn't fit quite so neatly into... I mean, this, this maybe also just points out one of the problems. Like when you've had such political partisanship lie around even the forms in which the basic norms, like what undergirds truth and how you tell stories and whether your right. responsibility to avoid conspiracy theory, you know, you, you reveal some of the sickness, I think, at the at the heart of, of the system. Yeah. And I, and I think that this is a, a good segue into like a piece that we had kind of talked about, you know, before we recorded. Uh, but it was a it's a piece by Alex Ross in The New Yorker about, you know, the Frankfurt School and how, you know, a lot of the things that we're saying here, I think, are in some ways, you know, a very Frankfurt School-like critique of, you know, what uh, Adorno called the culture industry. Jerry, for those who don't know, what is the Frankfurt School? So the Frankfurt School was this kind of loose assemblage of Marxists who worked and studied together at this institute, what is it called? The Institute for Social Research, I think is was, was its name, in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, in the interwar period. And so these are people like Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, you know, Marcuse maybe was was sort of part of that crowd. And what they were doing was they were kind of like formulating a critique of like a Marxist critique of culture, I guess, essentially. So, you know, yeah, they're sort of the of, founders of culture. Right. So, so if you think of so if you think of like Marx is writing primarily about sort of economic factors, uh, the Frankfurt School thinkers were people who extended that those ideas to an analysis of culture and especially mass media. So, for example, I mean, in this in this piece by Alex Ross, he quotes Adorno writing in one of his books, uh, Minimum Minimum Moralia, what he's what he's talking about. um, This is Ross here. Above all, he saw he meaning Adorno. Uh, saw a blurring of the line between reality and fiction. In his 1951 book, Minimum Moralia, he wrote, 
Lies have long legs. They are ahead of their time. The conversation of all questions of truth into the conversion, I'm sorry, of all questions of truth into questions of power, a process that truth itself cannot escape if it is not to be annihilated by power, not only suppresses truth as in earlier despotic orders, but has attacked the very heart of the distinction between true and false, which the hirelings of logic were in any case diligently working to abolish. So Hitler, of whom no one can say whether he died or escaped, survives. Um, and I think this is very, very close to uh, a critique made much, much later by Harry Frankfurt of Princeton philosophy fame, but also, but known mostly in the popular culture as the author of this very small book called On Bullshit, where, you know, he talks about how people who are bullshitters or people who don't have any concern for the truth itself, right? Distinguishing them from liars as, you know, liars are people who have a respect for truth because they want to mislead you, whereas bullshitters just don't care what the truth is. And so this is that little uh, pull quote from Minimum Moralia, in some ways the forerunner of that same kind of criticism. Right, and I, I guess this goes back to our earlier question of the ways in which the media abetted the operations of the state to a certain extent over the Nixon, Reagan, Bush, etc. administrations. And, you know, viewing this as continuous, you know, do you have this sort of continuous distortion of the real in the service of political ends that's served by mass media, that would be the Frankfurt School argument. They, they would see this as, as being far more continuous. Or do you have some break? And I guess I would assign some break to the politics it's in service of. But I think the the underlying analysis probably does feel like it, they're, they're to some extent continuous, right? Like you had, you had a famous book that Baudrillard wrote basically about the first Iraq war, actually, and noting that it was sort of a simulacra of war. And and I think that's obviously not true to the extent that people died in the first Iraq war. But I think that the way that it was a media event and it was orchestrated, and then actually you saw that replicated the second time as tragedy if the first time was was more comic in the second Iraq war, right. is I think relevant. And, and I again, so I think that, that you have these tools that the the Frankfurt School folks identified as being dangerous to democracy being utilized. I, I think the real interesting thing is why was American society more resilient to them? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe, maybe there there's a good argument. I, I think some people on the left would make it that it wasn't resilient and that, you know, this is in fact nothing new. I, I would attempt to argue that I, I think that we had a slightly less fractured politics. And one of the things that really scares me about our current political moment is that I I feel like the appeals to the sort of terrible demagoguery, you know, the Frankfurt School talked about Father Coughlin. That didn't work, right? FDR had it. And they, we, you know, we covered pretty extensively the problems with, with the New Deal in, in the first pod. But I but I think that there's there is some sort of breakdown of those unifying narratives which could prevent demagogues from taking over the sort of uh, mass media and using it for these fascistic purposes in America. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, part of it is just the fact that dissenting voices were, it's not so, it's not just that they were suppressed, it's that they didn't even have access to the channels where they could make themselves heard, right? I mean, like, you know, you had whatever in the 20s, you had anarchists publishing broadsheets in the streets of New York City. Well, okay, maybe like, some small fraction of people were reading that. But like anarchists did not have access to the major newspapers. They could not like get their positions out. Uh, right. and the, the Tuskegee same, Airmen didn't get to do a special on current TV. Exactly. And the same thing goes, you know, much more for people who were just like literally disenfranchised African-Americans, uh, you know, women to a large extent. Uh, these were just people who had no power whatsoever. And so, of course, at the unifying kind of structure at the top was all white dudes who... 
uh, you know, many of whom shared common backgrounds, common ideologies, and sort of had common perceptions of like what constituted the acceptable bounds of discourse. And once you get a, a situation where like all these previously disenfranchised groups now have access to uh, the levers of communication, well, like, you know, there's there's kind of two ways to deal with that, right? One one way is to say, okay, well, now the marketplace of ideas is broader. That is, you know, I think what we should be saying. But the second way of is, is, is like, oh my God, you know, the subordinate classes now like can talk. Like, or, or what, what's like the Gayatri Spivak thing? The subaltern, they can speak, right? Uh, so like it's better obviously to have those voices than right not but to have instead them. of i mean this is part of part of the issue we talked about last time instead of having a multi-vocal popular movement that controls political discourse but now hears from these other people you have a fragmentation and that fragmentation i think has again i don't want to go back i mean I, you know i speak yeah, as a no, liberal no, but, not at all but but i think that fragmentation has in certain ways this is interesting because we were fighting about Corey robin off the pod but i i do think that in service of his argument it's descriptively true that that fragmentation has impaired certain left movements and i think has also allowed a type of demagoguery that as you know it would have been dismissed out of hand by that politically disparate but in identity very very uh, similar uh, elite they you know they were like well we're not listening to the father coffins we're we're putting these demagogues aside and you know there's been a bit of a rupture into that yeah i think that's true although maybe maybe pre-led by Nixon. it's yeah i yeah i i think there's i think there's some truth to that part of the problem it seems to me is that in many ways even though we've expanded the range of kind of who gets to talk uh, we don't, haven't necessarily expanded to the same extent the range of what kinds of conversations you can have. Let's say let's say you're you're having your CNN, you have some kind of debate on whatever. So okay, you have you know your like white Republican, you have your black Democrat, and so you know that that looks like okay. We now have people on who wouldn't have been on in previous times, and that is true, and that's positive. But at the same time, like the range of things that they are arguing about and the latitude that they're given to actually voice like legitimate disagreements, not just like, I don't know, slinging mud at each other or just like, just like yelling at each other, right. Is severely limited. So you don't get people out there who are like, okay, we're going to have whatever, an hour long discussion on the, I don't know, the benefits of whatever the hell, like tax policy. Uh, because nobody wants to hear that, but, right? Like, uh, well, not but even. I'm, but I don't even mean like. I don't even mean like tax policy, because uh, that's pretty anodyne. But I mean like more fundamental. Sure, but isn't this actually the worry that like CNN in this election did put up people who had very divergent opinions outside of the mainstream, and they won? I mean, this is the sort of Jeffrey Lord is not a person who would have been put up on TV in your hypothetical example where it's like, oh, now we have, you know, a more multicultural, but ideologically still somewhat uniform in terms of where the poles are of political discourse, uh, you know, panel. Um, And now this time around, we have no, we're allowing the demagogues and the, you know, uh, white supremacists and everyone else to get up on on board. And maybe that's just a result of, you know, you used an explosion metaphor last time, like maybe it's the suppression of value conflict that allowed these things to come to the fore. But something about the we just need to have more divergent voices strikes me as problematic like i'm I'm not sure that actually is a solution because it feels like some of the people who did that this election were actually among and 
you know, not to make it just about the election, but who, who are doing that are, are among our least responsible sort of media outlets. Yeah, I, I think in part that's true. But my counterpoint to that would be to say that I feel like we're now in an environment where those people have, like, they figured out that they can get exposure. And so the new reality that we're living in is the reality where, you know, somebody like Jeffrey Lord can be on TV. So the question is, like, you know, how mm. can you how can you get because how do you put a Jeffrey Lord on TV without without being irresponsible about it? Well, no, I, I guess the, the question is. I, I, my question is sort of the inverse is like, how do you get Jeffrey Lord off of TV without also getting people off of TV who have like legitimate disagreements about not, le- not legitimate disagreements who have like just opposing views that don't fall neatly within, uh, the mainstream of sort of what's allowed to be discussed. I see. So like 60% of Americans believe in more immigration restrictionist policy than was ever pronounced up until by a major party candidate until like this year. Sure. And then you would Perot, right, before, but major party candidate. And yet none of those people were ever on TV. So how do you get that idea expressed, taken seriously, not validated for xenophobia, but taken seriously, without having that proponent of that be Jeffrey Lord? That's sort of your well, question? Well, it's, it's more like, I think of this in, uh, largely in with regard to, uh, for example, U.S. foreign policy, which is something that really doesn't get a whole lot of coverage. But, you know, there are like legitimate disagreements about like what should be the course of U.S. foreign policy. And, for example, issues like the surveillance state, all these things. No right? one disagrees about Israel. Yeah, no. Right. I, well, Israel is a good Israel is a good example. Um, I think that things like you know, selling arms to like Saudi Arabia so they can bomb Yemen like, into Yemen, oblivion, sure. yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's a disagreement that does not carry the same valence as like racial animus towards African-Americans and other minority groups. And so in the past, you had this situation where neither of these people would really get on TV. And so that had the kind of the salutary benefit of excluding like really vile racists, but it also had the downside that it excluded legitimate critics. And so that's the question that I'm worried about is how do you sort of, how do you adjudicate this problem of keeping people who are, you know, who are really like trying to rile up racial resentment from, you know, getting hold of a platform while at the same time allowing, you know, what is sort of really like, I think, very legitimate criticism. And my and what I think is that like you can't, there's no consistent way of doing it. There's a consistent way of like standing up for specific values. But if you're going to be the kind of institution that isn't going to dedicate itself or like explicitly to doing that, then there's no way that you can adjudicate these problems. Like if you're, right. and, and, and the reality that we're living in is that Jeffrey Lord is already on TV. Right. So like, okay, let's put people on TV. Let's get people on TV who are going to fight against that and who are, you know, just going to be like vocal champions of the values that we care about. I guess I, that's my feeling. I, I hear that. I, I guess I'll just say to, again, possibly move away from where my uh, liberal philosophical priorities lie. I think it's very difficult. You know, the Frankfurt School were, were Marxist and they talk about an iron cage of culture. They talk about particularly the sort of corporatist influence within the state. And, you know, with TV news in particular, without this idea of some censor who is putting on guests and, and mm-hmm. who's administrating and with a profit motive, I just think it's incredibly hard to have not only this sort of ideological diversity that you're talking about, where we enhance certain voices which are not represented, so not mainstream voices, but but real, true, ideologically different voices that, that represent real constituencies within our polity, but also to take away the most dangerous side of those voices, because the most dangerous ones feel to me like the ones who get the most audience, right? Like, 
I don't actually think that whatever that absurd fascist they wrote the fashion piece about uh, in in was it the Atlantic? I don't know. It was the Atlantic. Like I don't care about that guy because I don't really think he has a constituency. You know, I think Bannon and Limbaugh have constituencies, mm-hmm. and I think they're far more dangerous. And as much as yes, I sort of want to no platform Richard Spencer because I like no platforming Nazis. Like I, I don't actually, I'm not concerned about that. I don't know how you create a place where you can uh, no platform a Limbaugh in our current sort of understanding of. Uh, free speech rights and also understanding of sort of corporate control in the media. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't. I don't know that there's a there's any neat solution to this problem. I think that this issue with, as you say, with a corporate media is always going to be with us. I don't know. I think that this is really one of those situations where it does fall to individuals and you know people who care about this to to push forward a media that that it doesn't fall prey to these kinds of problems and uh, that. You know, that does good work. Uh, let a thousand podcasts bloom. The, that's right. Let a thousand podcasts bloom. And, and, and you know, as we've mentioned on the show, there are plenty of organizations that are deserving of support and that uh, that really do good work. And Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that, um, you know, my, my hope would be that right-wing versions of, the, of them show up as well. Like if the Koch brothers really want to do something good, I think they could fund journalistic efforts into covering mass incarceration. If, if that's something they really truly are ideologically opposed to maybe having platforms, nonprofit journalistic platforms that are cross ideological is like, is, is a start to getting to a place where you have a, a slightly better uh, media e- ecosystem on either side of the partisan divide. And, and I think it's important to know that there are people in conservative media, uh, for example, like Robert Costa, who I think he used to write for the National Review. I'm not sure if he writes for them anymore, uh, but he was kind of their reporter in Washington and is a very like is a respected guy. I mean, he does good reporting and he does his best to like actually get at, you know, the, the facts of what's going on. And, you know, I'm sure that he has a conservative ideological bent, but I've always found that like reading his his reporting that you know, you could like you could read something there. And you could be like, okay, like I trust that the this this set of facts is pointing me to something real and isn't just some kind of like you know deranged fantasy. Okay, so in closing, I think we've uh, hit a lot of different points today, and we may not be leaving people with you know a, a lot of prescriptions for what to do because we ourselves don't necessarily have any answers uh, specifically, except to say that, you know, one of our goals in starting this show has been partially to make ourselves better media consumers and to try and understand better what is going on around us. And we hope that one of the things that you take away, our listeners take away from this show, is also this encouragement that, yes, we, you know, we should, things are difficult and we don't all have all the answers, but that we should be better media consumers. And we hope that what you're hearing might help you do that. We're not, I don't think we're presumptuous enough to say that we know everything, but, uh, but we do hope that some of the stuff you heard today might help point the way. And I'd like to thank, as always, our talented sound engineer, Greg Young, uh, Jerry, and tell you finers to look forward for EP 1.4, No State Solution, in which we'll cover foreign policy uh, in the Obama and Trump eras uh, and our problems with it. 